Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. I'm already in awe of our next guest, I have to say, uh, fully admit it, and I haven't even dealt with her introduction yet. Um, it's not often you get the chance to deal with and speak to on the Sandro Forte podcast, a double world record holder, but today I get the opportunity to do just that, and she's a lovely lady too. Laura Penhall led the first all-female crew to row the Pacific Ocean. Let me just repeat that, Pacific Ocean, from America to Australia. With over 15 years in elite sport, Laura now uses her own experience to help others find their personal best as a performance manager and as a consultant, and may I say, a speaker as well. Very good one too. Laura Penhall, thank you so much for joining us on the Sandro Forte podcast today. This is one I'm really, really looking forward to, I have to say. Oh, thanks, Sandro. It's an honour. Thank you very much, especially with the credibility of all the other speakers you've had on this podcast. The listeners are, are very fortunate to see see the, the people you've had on. It's great. All their work, not mine. Um, now, this might seem like a really trite question, particularly to you, because you have a, you have a CV that, that, uh, that precedes you. Everyone knows who you are, I'm sure. Uh, and for the few people, the very few people listening who will be scrambling for their Google search engine right now to find out how Laura is, shame on you is all I can say. Um, but for those of those few people, Laura, that don't know you, just tell us a little bit about your background. And then if you would lead into the obvious question, why on earth would you decide to row across the Pacific Ocean? Yeah. I think, I mean, to be fair, I think that's maybe a good place to actually start. And then that, that gives the setting to to the history and and why I did what what I did to be honest because very much for me my background um, is as a was as a physiotherapist as you said for fifteen years in elite sport um, but as I was as I've always done when I started my career in physiotherapy you know you go shoulder to shoulder with individuals I worked in trauma to start with and um, you know trying to get somebody back on their feet to help them to be their best. And, and optimize what their abilities are over any disabilities that they may have was always kind of one of my mantras at the time, you know, in my, the way I approach my career. And for me, that was beyond the clinical practice. There's a number of different ways clinicians will approach. Some become specialties in, in parts of the limb or different injuries or whatever it may be. For me, I always was more of a people, you know, it was, it was about the person in front of me. So I, I very much had a clinical practice more that was holistic. So therefore, I really wanted to understand what the patients or athletes were going through. And I wanted to tap into that because I felt like if I had a good rapport with the people I worked with, then actually you become a team. And with that, then you build a belief in that person that they're going to succeed. So I think there's one thing you can be a great clinician, but actually if you're only just putting your hands on and telling somebody what to do, you haven't got them on board with the process, then you're only going to get so far. So to me, it's about the patient, the athlete taking autonomy and building that autonomy and that energy with that person. 
And so that sounds potentially a little bit airy fairy, but it was my approach. And I, I love that, you know, I've built some great rapport with people, but the way I would do it is say, for instance, when I started to go more into sport, um, you know, I was working with say people that were running the marathon and I was like, okay, well, what does it take to run a marathon? You know, are you doing it for time or do you want to do it as a tick box? Cause they're two very different goals. And so therefore for me to understand what they were going through, I would then run a couple of marathons, not necessarily trying to be an elite athlete, but one, yes, I like to keep myself fit, but I wanted to understand the environment. So by doing that, suddenly then it opens the conversation more when somebody walks into my, you know, my clinic room to say, I want him to run a marathon. It's in two weeks time. I've got a bit of a knee injury. Should I call it quits? And I'll be like, no, what's the, what's the aim of this? Is the purpose to just run a marathon? You've been training for six months. You don't care what time you do it in, or is it to do it to a time? Cause they're two different goals. And by assessing that and knowing that and having done stuff myself, then you start to build a rapport and you share the stories. Same with then kind of working with triathletes. I wanted to do some to understand what the environment was, same with skiing. So when I became a physio with Paralympic sport, it was very much working with people, obviously, that had gone through significant adversity. And yet they've woken up the next day. And instead of like being somebody that's woken up after being, you know, injured, unfortunately, by a bomb and losing both limbs, they've woken up and gone, thank God I'm alive. Like, right. How do I make the most of the abilities I've got now versus somebody else waking up from exactly the same situation and actually wishing they weren't alive? And the difference there is the mindset. The difference there is obviously the experiences and the support they've got around them, all different factors that influence their decision making moving forwards. But as a physio in that environment and working with that sort of those sorts of people and people that have gone through significant adversity, it's always made me question, well, hang on a minute, why do we wait for significant adversity to be thrown at us? You know, why, you know, I'm fit and healthy and very fortunate with kind of, you know, the support I've got around me. Why am I not, you know, making the most out of this? And actually, what do we draw on? I wanted to know to connect to those types of athletes. I wanted to know what was it did they draw on when they were wanting to give up? You know, when they were faced with that significant adversity, what was it in their mindset, their approach that made them not give up and continue to fight going forwards? And for me, you know, I couldn't go into that full environment and, and throw myself in that sense, but that's what drew me to doing the row. That was my why is I wanted to do something as close to basically asking myself of wanting to give up, but I couldn't. And I wanted to do something that was going to take me completely out of my comfort zone. It was a blank canvas. You know, I'd gone from you know, as a hobby, running some marathons, doing triathlons, half Ironman stuff, but nothing really mentally tested me the way the row did. And so when I heard about ocean rowing, I was like, well, that's perfect. I've never rowed before. I've never been out at sea before properly. I've never lost sight of shore. I've no idea about what it takes to, to be at sea. I'm no mariner. Um, I also needed to put on weight. I needed to put a team together. I needed to put finances and build a business around this. All of that was a blank canvas. Uh, I had no idea. And I was like, if I can come at this with an adaptive mindset, if I can be a blank canvas, and if I can surround myself with the best expertise that I know of, actually, what could we achieve here? What could be the potential? And that's then what evolved into, well, okay, maybe the Atlantic, maybe the Indian Ocean. And then I realized, well, actually, nobody's really rode the Pacific. Then there was a race that went, the new ocean race, 
race or he goes from San Francisco to Hawaii. And somebody said about doing that. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's not the Pacific. That's a third of it. You know, I can't say I've rode the Pacific if I've only rode a third of it. Is it possible to row all of it? And that's basically where it all, the projects sort of evolved from there. And that's that was my big why. I wanted to put the team together. I wanted to find out for myself, what do we draw on when we're wanting to give up? And I wanted to see, actually, if you've got an adaptive mindset, if you're a blank canvas, you surround yourself by expertise, putting myself on the other side of the table, being athlete versus the support team, actually, what, what are we capable of? You know, what could I achieve personally? And how can I use that experience to then go on and support the people that I work with in the future? You and I were speaking uh, before the, the podcast started today, Laura, and, and uh, I, I said to you that I think you were being quite modest about your achievements. And you were saying, oh, you know, well, you know, when you lose sight of shore, you could be anywhere, whether it's the Pacific and Atlantic. And I've got a couple of friends who've, who've, um, who've rode across the Atlantic. Uh, and you were saying, you know, you could just as easily be in the Irish Sea. Uh, and I think I came back to you with the comment, well, I'd be quite happy to row the Irish Sea on the basis that I know that probably in a couple of days I'm going to be on the other side rather than in several months or however, however long. How long did it take you, by the way? It took us nine months in the end. We thought it nine was six. Months. We were planning wow. for six and it took nine in the end. But yeah, it's a slightly Absolutely longer incredible. Plan. Okay, so the obvious question now is, putting yourself and talk about dedication to your professional cause uh, and we'll talk about the volunteering work and the other stuff that you do because you've got a pager by your side and we may end up cutting this short today I'm, I'm not sure hopefully hopefully not but um the obvious question really is you put yourself through that dedication to the cause to understand what other people go through to make you a better version of yourself when you do get to those moments and i'm going to ask you about those moments now when you did want to give up because you know it's all well and good going into this situation and go, I, I need to understand this and I need to go through that process. But inevitably, over a period of nine months, you are going to find those moments where you go, what did I do this for? Uh, and I guess the analogy really is because we get lots of emails from listeners around the world, Laura, who say things like, you know, I'm ready to give up. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't find a way out of this, of this situation or this process. Can you give me some advice? So what would you say to those people based on your own experience? Yeah, no, and it's it's a great question and, and one I get asked a lot of, uh, yeah, fairly frequently. And I would say to me, it, anybody that comes to me with an expedition or something that they want to do, my first question to them is your why. You know, what's the purpose of doing this? You know, if it's a tick box, then when, it, when the things get tough, then you're very soon going to want to just jump to comfort. So first and foremost, to me, there's the driver, there's the big, strong purpose behind the why of, of what you're wanting to do. Um, and I think by having that and having really true clarity on that means certainly in, in my situation meant when I was drawing on in those moments when I was really struggling I would, I would draw on that why. So what I mean by that is I would then give myself a different sense of perspective. So when we were like thinking it was going to be six months and it ended up being nine months and the implication that that had from missing Christmas and you know, New Year with family, friends, a very highlight of what I was looking forward to, to getting back home for, um, getting back to the British athletics team at the time that I was prior to going into the row was lead physio for, and they, they were part of the reason why I was doing it. They were my big why I was like, well, and I may well miss seeing them through to the Rio games because we were so long out there. It, 
it was then like, well, yeah, but there's, there's a reason why I'm here. If I quit now, like I'm not going to get this experience and that everything that we've just worked for is, has gone completely to waste. Secondly, you know, I'm here for the very reason that I want to give up. This is the only opportunity right now. If I don't finish this, like, you know, yes, I've got a choice right now, but actually do I want to give myself a choice to quit? So, you know, fundamentally, when you go into any expedition, you know, have you got a choice to quit or not? And to me with the row, I only said that there were three reasons why I wouldn't continue with the row. And that would be anything that was out of our control. So that meant environmentally, it was too dangerous to, we'd got to say Hawaii and it was too dangerous to continue. And that's deemed by, you know, other people, experts around us. The boat itself had broken down in a way that was not fixable and we couldn't continue or medically injury wise, whatever um, injury illness wise, we weren't able to continue. So that's it. Those are, those are my only reasons of not continuing. So therefore I didn't give myself a choice outside of that. So when those times happen of getting dark, one, I had um, a great depth of inspiration from the athletes and the people I've worked with over the years to go, well, they didn't have a choice in this moment in time. And they would have continued and they would have drawn on sort of inner straight. You've just got to continue. Like there is no choice. And then therefore keep drawing on sort of what you can control and just trust in the process that you've done the work and you're here and you, you continue. Secondly is in those moments is like, yeah, you, you've got to trust in the process that you've, you've laid out. It took me four years to get to the start line. And therefore I went through every single what if planning I could. So not leaving any stone left unturned so that actually things became autopilot pretty much on the row. And then therefore that gave me mental capacity to deal with more of the unknown. I think kind of when you go into some of these projects and there's a lot of unknowns, but actually you could know about them, if that makes sense. It means they start to pile up and suddenly mistakes or things do continue to happen. And it feels like that's quite overwhelming. Whereas if you go in very planned about what are all the what if scenarios you could be faced with, and then you have a plan for all of those what if scenarios, suddenly from a mental energy point of view, you've got that already mapped out. You've got, you've got that written down. You've got that mentally mapped as well. So therefore you can close it off. So you've suddenly got another bit of bandwidth available to cope with an unknown that you've not prepared for. Um, and when you're sleep deprived, you're cold, you're wet, you're hungry, you're, you know, underfueled, all those sorts of things, you're seasick, you're sore, blah, blah, blah. The list goes on. Your bandwidth gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the more you can know, uh, it makes it a lot easier to deal with the unknown because you you've created that bandwidth space. Wow. Um, just to recap on a couple of things that um, highlights for me personally, and I'm sure uh, people listening have taken a couple of uh, thoughts away already. I think that that whole thing you said about approaching the same goal in different ways is, um, is a real eye opener for, for me and for lots of other people. And this whole thing around preparation, you know, four years to get to the start line is, is the bit, you know, it's the, to use a, a, a seafaring analogy, it's the it's the iceberg. It's the bit under the water that people don't necessarily see before you even start in this process. And and Laura, notwithstanding the fact that you're clearly a bit mad, I mean, I'm not sure I know any other person in physical therapy uh, who would run a couple of London marathons just to see what their clients go through, or or participate in an Ironman or person or whatever the technical expression is these days. Um, and then, of course, topping all that off with a row across the Pacific. 
what what did you discover about yourself that you didn't know before you started this process? Yeah, I think that's a lovely, lovely question. Um, the biggest thing that's ongoing and is something now I do more and more sort of talks with and support others with is the is the self-awareness piece. Like, you know, having it was more about the mental, the mindset, the the importance of all of that way above the physical. You know, when I when I started the project first year in, you know, coming from a performance aspect of it and performance approach and being somebody that's more in the physical sort of space, I straight away went to GB rowing sort of head strength conditioning coach, Alex Wolf at the time, who was a good friend of mine. And I was like, right, I need to learn to row. I need to get physically robust enough. Like what's the conditioning I need to do? So I ticked off all the things that were easy access for me, if that makes sense, understanding it as a physio to go, right, how do I prevent injuries? How do I get myself big and robust? How do I, you know, row then efficiently? And that was the automatic. So then I suddenly training was, I thought was the be all and end all, you know, you hear rowing in ocean and I still, to this day, a number of Atlantic rowers will come to me and say, right, what's the training schedule? What do I need to do physically? And anybody that's a team, I say, you know what the physical, yes, you need to do it, but it's 10%. The bit that you need to train and you need to prepare for is 90% mental. You need to have the mental strategies for your own self and for your team in coping. Like how are you going to increase your, what are your performance enhancing strategies? How do you up your game when you, when you're feeling low, how do you calm your arousal level when actually you need to be hunkered and you into the cabin because there's a major storm? Like how do you control that overwhelmment feeling of claustrophobia? All those, those bits are the sort of the absolute, to me, the, the bit that's the success of what we did. It was working with the likes of Keith Goddard, who was our psychologist for the row, who both helped us in the organizational planning and us as a teamwork and the dynamic and the work that we did as a team was, was absolutely invaluable. And then, you know, what we did for on the row, uh, sorry, on the water itself, they were two different phases and there was a post row. So we kind of had these mental preparation planning phases that were three different environments to be in. And it was, we had that for individuals and we had that as a team and we set values that were crucial that we lived and breathed by. So, you know, team approaching everything with team spirit, having that written on our boat spirit meant to us strength, both mental and physical. It meant perseverance. It meant integrity as a team. It meant resilience. It meant inspiration, how we drawing from it from others and how we sharing our story. And it fundamentally meant trust within ourselves, within how we worked as a team and our outside support and the process that we set about. So everything that we did, what I learned, and sorry, very long-winded. And as I said to you at the start, I do tend to go off on a tangent. So apologies, Sandra, on that front. <laughs> um, but to me, I guess the biggest, biggest learning point coming back to your original question was do not underestimate the power of mental skills, training, being aware of your thought space, understanding where your thoughts lead to, the behavior output that that leads to, the feelings that you get around certain thoughts, all of that self-awareness piece that has developed both as an individual and how I interact with teams and how I collaborate and formulate teams and help other teams now, it was crucial to the approach that we have, the mindset that we have and the ability to adapt in given situations. Um, so to me, it's the human factors, the self, the self-awareness is the biggest, biggest learning I had, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the biggest learning I had, but it also has highlighted to me it's it's lifelong learning. So I I learned certain things for sure during the row, which has accelerated that for me hugely. But on top of that post row, it's then made me trigger understanding, sorry, certain triggers that create different thoughts, different feelings and outward behaviors that I would not normally be aware of. So therefore being able to then adjust, get the right input, get the right help with that to, to mold and continue to, to keep trying to be the best version of myself day in, day out. Incredible. Um, Laura, we get more questions on this subject than any other. And I'm gonna I'm gonna to touch on something you said earlier about you know 90% mental, 10% physical. I think were the words you used or words words that effect. Um, a lot of people talk about they don't use the words mental strategy, but they just say you know I've got this goal, I've got this really clear aim, I've got a vision, I know what it is I want to do, I've got the the abilities to do it, and I just can't get out of the starting blocks. I can't deal with adversity. The, the little setbacks just derail the the plan. I, I, you know, we come across listeners who, you know, are clearly very talented that never fulfil their potential, and they're always asking us uh, to bring in guests that talk about mental strategy. To use the the expression we used, to 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 be calm when they have that feeling of overwhelm, to overcome barriers and obstacles when the going gets tough. Uh, this is not the appropriate time to ask you for a whole series of different mental strategies, but is it just a question of reconnecting with that why, really understanding what the why is and then reconnecting with it? Or is it or is there more to it than that? Yeah, no, um, yeah, I would say that there's a bit, there's definitely more depth to it than that for sure. Um, there's also very much, you know, I work with a company called Tignum now. It's an international company. We support uh, high C-suite level uh, individuals going through mindset approach, nutrition, all the sort of different foundations, but to deliver for critical moments. Now that's performance in a day-to-day space. We all need to perform, right? Kind of in whatever work context yourself in a wealth management perspective, you know, you'd know what it's like to get pressures on you, delivery times that you need to do. Uh, It's about with Tignum, we very much look at like sport, what's the critical moment? When do you need to deliver? When do you need to be your best version of yourself? And then therefore, what are all the tools and and strategies you can have to to build that? And mindset is one of the biggest drivers of that uh, and approach. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because there's some great tools and strategies that we use that are are kind of a a nice and simple to talk through. Um, But the biggest thing we talk about is that this is not about having a positive mindset. You know, this is about having a performance mindset and they are two very different things. It's there. It's not about just saying everything's rosy because that is not normal. That is not uh, a natural kind of process. And in doing that, actually, it draws more energy from you than actually is beneficial. A performance mindset is about recognizing the situation that you're in and kind of actually recognizing the emotions that you're feeding. And so going, you know what, and excuse the language on this, but this feels crap. This feels not very good right now. I'm feeling really emotionally fatigued right now. And you've got to recognize that rather than try and shove it under the carpet. So the first point is recognizing it. The the next thought is, okay, what are my current thoughts about this right now? I can't do this. This is right. I'm doing that because this is my emotional situation, but you know what? This is the situation we're in. I can't change that, but what I can change is how I see this in my mindset. So 
how, say, for instance, Tigna would talk about that is about reframing, like a process of reframing that you can go through that is about looking at, well, this is the situation you're in. You can't change it. So basically, you've only got two choices there. You quit or you suck it up and you try and find solutions. And I guess the approach that I have is always there's got to be a way of, of dealing with this. There's always solutions. So I just need to see this from a different perspective, from a different angle. And you might see it from one other angle and that doesn't work. So, okay, you try again and you keep trying until to me, the uncontrollable comes up to you to sort of be like, actually, I can't continue any further. Otherwise, if I don't have that stop sign that's happening in, in, the, in the case that I can't then see a solution, then I'm going to keep trying to tap away at something. So the mindset and the approach is about reframing. It's about recognizing first and foremost, your thoughts, your feelings, and, and listening to that, but then recognizing the situation that you're in and making a choice in that moment. Well, are you going to quit or are you going to find a solution? And just keep it as simple. I think we sometimes we can make things too complicated and we can suddenly think we've got all these choices out there. And actually, when you strip back and limit your choices, suddenly pathways become a lot simpler. And I would say the final point on that would be, you know, half the time with the expedition world stuff, I would say it's because, you know, Mark Beaumont explains this really nicely, having the accordion approach, you know, a lot of people get too overwhelmed in certain situations because they've just zoomed out and they've gone, oh my God, I'm only a hundred miles into a 9,000 mile journey. This is how difficult it's feeling now. Oh my God, I can't do this. Like, what's this? Oh my God, I'm in the middle of this massive Pacific ocean. Ah, and it all starts to build. And in that moment, you kind of got to go stop, right? All I need to do right now is put for us in the, in the rowing. I've just got to put the oars in the water, put the oars in the water and through. So it's literally focus on stroke by stroke, then start to focus on, right, how is my body moving? Right. Am I fueling? Am I, these are, start to focus on everything in your control and zoom right in to the very small chunking. And then slowly, but surely your stroke by stroke turns into shift by shift. Your shift by shift turns into day by day. Your day by day turns into week by week, month to month, stage by stage. Um, but it enables you to get there. It's just like building a house. You put one brick down, you don't kind of, you know, overwhelmed of how big that house is going to be. You've got to start with a brick or the front, whatever you want to, analogy you want to use. But you get my point in when you get those overwhelming points, you've got to listen to that feeling. You've got to recognize the situation, stop sign, reframe it, and, you know, look at the solutions. And often in the solutions, when you're in the thick of it is about, chunking it and just focusing on what you can control. Outside of that, going back to the, the original point you mentioned about the physical and the mental, don't get me wrong. Like you can't have all of this mindset and be the, you know, you could be the strongest mindset person and have that in the bag, but you, you've, you know, neglected any physical, you're going to put yourself in a whole world of pain and injuries and all that sort of stuff. So yes, optimize your physical space to make sure you can deliver what you need to deliver for the task in hand. But the mindset is then the biggest, biggest, biggest work on after that. And listeners, Laura, will, you know, anybody, you know, doing any kind of uh, search for you at the moment will come across a couple of words that I've say, seen associated with you many times. And that's adaptive performance. Is, is that what you're talking about now um, in relation to the to the process? Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've just found over time those people that have 
got an adaptable mindset. And what I mean by that, they've got the ability to kind of see what's in front of them, realize it's not working and change their perspective and find solutions and adapt with the times and changes. Often that, you know, there's so many things all of us will think are key behaviors or qualities or values that we we believe in. Uh, I've just felt personally that when I've tapped into being adaptable, I've been able to overcome hurdles. Um, and that just means constantly finding different solutions, reaching out, making sure you ask for help, you know, looking to people that are experts rather than taking all the ownership. You know, those are my my failures that I've learned from. And fundamentally, it's not a failure unless you don't learn from it. So things where I've, you know, 100 percent, the row wasn't successful for four years. You know, I'm not going to say I sat there at the start planning for four years. I didn't. I was really naive at the start, but I kept on using that failure point to learn from it and evolve and pull more people in to help and and to sort of bring other people's strengths in which were not areas of my strength you know yes I could look after the physical but uh, you know and I still wouldn't say to this day the amount I've learned around mindset is one thing but I'm no psychologist so therefore I would pull in a psychologist I would personally I go to see a psychologist to help me with my occupational psych or I'd help me with my personal life kind of goals and stuff no different to going to the gym and seeing a trainer like to me that that needs training um and it's the it's the area that you just learn the most about yourself um and it opens the door for how you approach relationships whether it's personally or in work um and anyway i could talk about that till the cows come home but i think to me it's it's yeah the mindset approach it's it takes training it takes practice so even if if you've got an expedition in six months time, it isn't about necessarily going to start speaking to a psychologist now to think you're going to have all those tools and strategies in place. I was working with a psychologist four years out from the start line. The first two years, I didn't really practice or understand most of the tools and things he was trying to get me to do. It wasn't until actually I kept practicing it and then suddenly things were happening that were difficult that I then started to draw on actually these tools really do work for me um and constantly reflecting on that was was effective so yeah like anything it's it's something that takes training it's constant life learning practice but without a doubt it's it's effective so having established you're a little bit mad um in in the loveliest in the loveliest possible way i've also concluded you've got a low boredom threshold because uh, i alluded to the fact you've got a pager by your side so i think i'm right in saying you're a lifeboat crew volunteer um, and, and, and a speaker and, and uh, a physiotherapist and all the other things that you do. Um, nothing short of amazing, really. And of course, for those people who don't know, there was a, I believe, a, a, a really good documentary, which I've put on my list of, to do um, about an hour and a half long, a few years back about your, uh, about your journey, which if people want to know more about Laura Penhall, they should, they should watch, I, I suspect. Uh, what's, what's next for you, Laura? Dare I ask? <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting is that people often, often ask that, especially when you finish an expedition and a lot of people will do expeditions and it's kind of, you know, it's part of a journey. As I started this conversation for me, it was, I did the row for a very strong why. And that why was more about how I could then help others to get the best out of themselves. And that's, that's fundamentally why I've used that to now either help people. Yes, for sure. To go into own expeditions for themselves, but only really working with people that I think have got a very strong purpose and a why. Um, 
and then helping them to achieve that. So then, yes, I bring the performance approach to that and performance lens. At the same time, it is about just getting people to ideally achieve their personal best, whatever that may be. I, it's not about rowing an ocean for me, you know, as, as cheesy as this line is going to sound, it, we all do have our own Pacifics to cross. So I get just as motivated to go shoulder to shoulder with somebody who is going through a significant Pacific in their life. And if that's, you know, a significant adversity and they've lost sense of themselves versus kind of also somebody that's been injured and they just want to be able to walk a 5k, let alone run it or whatever. I, the goal itself isn't what motivates me. It's the individual and, and their kind of their purpose in, in their approach to what they're wanting to do is what is what sort of I get motivated by. And so therefore in answering your original question, as I've gone off on a tangent there, my next, in a, in a personal sense, I've actually, you know, it's more getting grounded, you know, you're right my career I've gone through and, you know, we all, we're all human. I think that's the, the biggest thing I'd say is if anybody puts anybody that does expeditions or they've achieved big things up on a pedestal, there are human beings still at the same time. And so actually normality of, you know, I've just got married a couple of uh, months ago. So back in November the 6th, we got married. Um, and actually just having some stability has been the first time in my life that I'm loving just being content with my sort of home now in Cornwall, having a house and, and, you know, getting married, all of those big qualities that we all take for granted, I fully appreciate given the fact I've always chased the uncomfortable and, and I ended up feeling comfortable in the uncomfortable and uncomfortable in the comfortable, if that makes sense. So what, what's been beautiful is switching that round a little bit um, and continuing sort of what you were saying there, my spark, my desire is to support others going through this. That's why I love the lifeboat, you know, that, that kind of, it's such a, a collaborative and a, a great team to be part of. But even in that, I love being part of the crew, not necessarily leading it. I love the team cohesion. I love just getting involved. And again, it's there for other people. It's not it's not for necessarily us ourselves. So whether I'm making the, the other crew a cup of tea when they come in from a shout or whether I'm going out on a shout myself, um, I'm not chasing to be on the boat, if that makes sense. It's about a collective effort to get the best for somebody that's that in, in the lifeboat, for sure, somebody that's life is under threat at sea. Laura, I can, I can generally count on the fingers of one hand the number of times over the last three years, and I say this with absolutely no disrespect to any of our wonderful guests because they've all been terrific this is one of those occasions where i wish we could go on having a conversation for a lot longer uh but people will get very unhappy if they have to listen to a podcast for 45 60 minutes because we always promise that they're going to be 30 so unfortunately i have to ask you a couple of final questions and then we'll wrap up but i'm sure there are going to be untold uh calls for you to come back and, and give us a part two because we've only we've only just touched the surface but anyway um first question would be how do people find out more about you? How do they connect with you? Um, social media, website, find out what you're up to, what crazy thing you're going to do next when you've enjoyed the married life for a period of time. So that's the, that's the first question. And then the second question, as you probably know, is, which we asked all our guests, if there was one rule to live your life by, if you could leave everyone listening to this podcast today with one simple mantra, what would it be? 
Right. So starting with your first question, um, you can find me. I've got a website. So just www.laurapenhall.com. And my surname is spelled P-E-N-H-A-U-L. And that therefore sort of if you head to there, my email address is on there as well. So if anybody wants to reach out and contact, feel free to do so. Um, That just gives you an insight into the kind of performance consultancy or support I can provide, whether it's expeditions or for individuals or for in the corporate space alongside the business with Tignum. Um, Outside of that, yes, on Instagram, same at Laura Penhall as my tag, same with Twitter and um, yeah, LinkedIn is the same with Laura Penhall. Um, And then from a point of view of the great question that you asked of what would be one thing, actually before that, sorry, I suppose you mentioned as well about the film. So Losing Sight of Shore is a film you can find on Amazon and iTunes. Um, and that's basically the documentary of the Pacific Ocean Row. So you'll, you'll see all of us as a team and the, you'll see that our focus was about team cohesion and how we stepped on as teammates and stepped off as friends. Um, and that was that was the main aim of what we wanted to achieve as a team. So that aside, uh, the main question of what would be the one thing I would leave people with to me, a mantra I've, I've kind of always asked myself, particularly when you get forks in the road or you're drawn on something that's that's difficult or it's challenging you. I And I've partly taken this, I suppose, from Chrissy Wellington, who was a bit of an inspiration to me over time. And she's fortunately become a good friend of mine now. But to me, the mantra I would I would always use is never be left with what if. So I mean by that is I've always asked myself that question when I've had the most opportune job, but then I was doing the row. I was like, okay, well, what if I don't do the row, but I take up this job role? This is what I've always wanted. Well, that the row was only there. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm not going to be able to do that again versus doing the row and going, okay, I've missed out on the job, but you know what? Another Olympic cycle, four years down the line, eight years down the line, that job could always be there at some point in my lifetime. So, so by asking myself, what if, when I've had a crossroads like that has really helped me to, to eliminate kind of the the choice or the overwhelmment of, of certain decisions being made. And then I can park it and go, I've made it for this decision and I, I can crack on. Um, I think also asking yourself the question of, okay, well, what if in a moment when you want to give up, you go, right, well, what if, then you've got a choice. My, what if is, what if I give up right now? Versus what if I find a solution or continue forwards, just focusing on what I can control. And again, that clearly straight away helps me to stick on the finding a solution, focusing on the small chunks, focusing on what I can control and not focusing on the uncontrollables. And and by just keeping that question of never be left with a what if, then it, it helps in any fork that I've come across. It's been awe-inspiring today. I think it was a word I used right at the start of today's conversation, Laura, but it it genuinely has been absolutely mind-blowing, eye-opening, inspirational, motivational, and every other adjective I can think uh, to describe uh, what you've shared with us all today. So thank you so much, Laura Penhall, for being a wonderful Sandro Forte podcast guest, for finding the time in your crazy schedule with all the things that you do. But most importantly, allow me to take this opportunity to wish you and your husband and uh, the, the family to come, all the very best. Continue doing all the amazing things you're doing, speaking on stages, taking your expertise uh, and uh, and ideas to, to the masses because uh, you really are changing people's lives. So 
thank you very much indeed for being so utterly wonderful today. It's been uh, a true pleasure having you on the on the podcast. Thank you, Sandra. It's been a pleasure to be on it and very humble to be amongst the, the plethora of guests that you've had on this podcast. So thank you. Uh, Dame Laura Penhall, it's only a matter of time. Uh, and thank you to all of you for joining us on the Sandro Forte podcast today. Wasn't Laura Penhall absolutely amazing? She's one of the few people who can actually say specific Pacific as well, which is, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, remember, of course, we have a new guest joining us each week to share their own insights into achieving success or overcoming, of course, life challenges. Do get in touch with Laura directly if you wish to. You know how to do that now. And contact us. It's at Sandra's Podcast. Hello at sandraspodcast.com if you've got any questions for either ourselves or Laura. And remember, you'll automatically be entered into a prize draw to win one of the prizes kindly donated by one of the guests on the Sandro Forte podcast. Finally, do connect with me. Uh, it's at Sandro Forte on Twitter and the real Sandro Forte on Instagram, as you probably know by now because you hear me say it every week. But do also connect with Laura as well. She's an absolutely amazing lady, as you've just found out. Thank you again to Laura Penhall and to all of you for listening. Until this time next week and another Sandro Forte guest, it's goodbye for now.